Hello and welcome to the Unsweetened Literary Podcast for 2021. My name is Eleanor and I'll be hosting this episode with my fellow editor, Wen. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal and Bidigal peoples of the Eora Nation and the Ngunnawal people traditional custodians of the lands of UNSW. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening. This is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, Today I am with fellow editor Wen. Wen, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, good, good. How are you going with uh, end of term? Two weeks left. Well, I'm not actually in uni. Because I'm on program leave. But um, yeah, things have been busy, especially that like Unseaton has been ramping up with like um since like submissions are there now. Yeah, so, yeah. Yes. How about you? Yeah, very, very busy, kind of in assignment mode where I'm just obviously with lockdown kind of just stuck in my room (laughs) staring at a laptop for about eight hours a day and I didn't mean for that to sound as depressing as it did but (laughs) that is the reality of end of term and we hope I hope that everyone out there in UNSW or any uni really studying in trimesters is feeling okay for end of term and also hope that everyone's doing okay and taking care of their mental health during this lockdown uh, in New South Wales. So when did you want to, have you been reading anything lately? Mm, well, the most recent thing I've been, I've read was Cersei mm-hmm. by Madeline Miller. It was, it was really great. It's basically talking about Cersei's entire life. So from when she was in the house of Helios to when she you know, got to her own island and I was kind of like trapped there, but she made something of herself and it was like a really great journey. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was a really nice read. Um, Actually, I read that book. I read it, I think, towards the beginning of the year. But oh. yeah, it's it's such a good book. I agree. I, I really loved it. It's I love beautiful. the way that she writes and just the detail of like Cersei's life and from her perspective Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It was I, so immersive too, like the descriptions and the whole like space and everything. It was oh, it was Yeah, I agree. Anyone out there who likes mythology, likes witchy stuff, I would definitely read Cersei because it oh, yeah. is fantastic. Um can recommend. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh I don't know, I haven't really been it's a bit sad, I haven't really been reading much besides submissions I've been reading a lot of submissions <laughs> and uni like research papers for essays I've got I started a Stephen King novel called Dolores Claiborne mm. I, I'm only about five pages in and it's been that way for about three weeks now <laughs> <laughs> that's such a big mood <laughs> <laughs> it's still I still carry it with me wherever I go it just stays permanently in my bag or whenever yeah. I can leave the house and um <laughs> And it just stays there as like a safety net, but also it's like, it's kind of mocking me. Like, why haven't you read me yet? <laughs> I know I got a whole pile of that. So oh, it's shit. mocking me like half finished books. 
Yeah. 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 Yeah.
as a writer myself, I give props to all fantasy writers for being able to create a whole world <laughs> and backstory <laughs> and all of that. Like, it's crazy. But yeah, speaking of genre and also literary movements, for this episode, we have a fellow editor, Belle, discussing her choice of literary movement. So without further ado, give it away, Belle. In her acceptance speech for the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, author Ursula K. Le Guin noted the absence of her fellow writers of the imagination from the halls of fame of literature. She commented that we need writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being. Fantasy is a genre that has often been difficult to pin down, by fans and academics alike. The proliferation of various subgenres and strains of fantasy, from grimdark to urban, make it a constantly evolving and ambivalent genre that has unfortunately, as Le Guin notes, been oft snubbed by conventional literary academia. However, from an anthropological point of view, fantasy is a rich and culturally diverse genre with origins tracing back to the beginning of human storytelling itself. Fantasy has influences from early folklore and mythology, from the Epic of Gilgamesh of ancient Mesopotamia, to Ovid's Metamorphosis, to the ghost stories of Ming Dynasty Shenmo. The elves and dwarves and dragons that we have all come to associate with fantasy are often drawn from Celtic, Norse, and Germanic folklore and mythology. However, the development of modern fantasy is usually attributed to Scottish author George MacDonald, whose novel Fantasties, published in 1858, is widely considered to be the first fantasy novel written for adults. It follows a young man who is pulled into a dreamlike world in order to hunt for his idealised model of feminine beauty, embarking on adventures and withstanding temptations, until he is forced to give up his ideals and return to the real world. However, it wasn't until the 20th century that fantasy as a genre really began to hit its stride, although not without considerable struggle. Through writers like Rudyard Kipling and Edgar Rice Burroughs, the West saw the popularity of the Lost World subgenre of adventure fantasy, which became the site of exploration of the effects of colonialism. However, fantasy still struggled to be seen as a legitimate literary genre, and many of these writers were pressured to conform to forms aimed at children. Fantasy was also often lumped in with science fiction, published together in pulp magazines such as Weird Tales and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which made it difficult for the genre to separate itself from other speculative forms. However, the advent of high fantasy, with the publication of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, would change the trajectory of fantasy as a genre forever. Coined by Lloyd Alexander in his 1971 essay, the term high fantasy is used to describe stories set in an entirely fictionalised alternative world with clear and consistent rules and institutions, as opposed to low fantasy stories which are often set in the real world with the inclusion of fantastical or magical elements, as seen in the works of Neil Gaiman, for example. 
High fantasy works often focus on themes such as morality, the price of power, and often follow the hero's quest with protagonists who have low beginnings but must rise to new heights in order to defeat cosmic evils. The Fellowship of the Ring was initially published in 1954 as a sequel to Tolkien's wildly popular children's book, The Hobbit. But for Tolkien, it was only the last movement in a much older set of stories he had begun working on since 1917, in a process he described as mythopia. A gifted linguist and philologist, Tolkien constructed the fictional elvish language of Quenya, inspired by Finnish, Latin, Greek, Welsh, and ancient Germanic languages. The series is concerned with themes of power and responsibility, fate and free will, and immortality. Some critics, despite Tolkien's emphatic denial, have argued that the series was written as an allegory for his experiences in both of the world wars, and others have dismissed it as nothing more than regressive escapism. However, it cannot be denied that the series was immensely influential for the development of fantasy as we know it. Modern additions to the genre, such as George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series, and Andrzej Szapowski's The Witcher are all examples of Tolkien's influence on contemporary popular fantasy. Furthermore, many popular video games such as The Elder Scrolls, World of Warcraft and Dark Souls, as well as tabletop games such as Dungeons and Dragons, borrow heavily from a number of horror, fantasy and sci-fi writers. So what is it about this genre that continues to capture and fascinate audiences today? Drawing upon the great influence of mythology on fantasy, John C. Hunter remarks that the readers of the genre feel it partly restores or substitutes some of the essential spiritual experiences that modern life has deprived us of. Sarah Beach comments that Tolkien's works waken in readers' hearts the awareness of elvish magic in the world the readers are living in, the crispness of autumn days, the sound of falling water. This mysterious need is satisfied by fantasy texts, a need for something spiritual to replace everything that post-war Western culture has called into question and to stop our descent into the maddening materiality of life. As Ursula Le Guin put it in her book of essays, Language of the Night, for fantasy is true, of course. It isn't factual, but it's true. Children know that, adults know it too, and that's precisely why many of them are afraid of fantasy. They know that its truth challenges, even threatens, all that is false, all that is phony, unnecessary and trivial in the life they have let themselves be forced into living. They are afraid of dragons, because they are afraid of freedom. So an update on submissions. Recently our submissions have closed, so big thanks to everyone who submitted. We have really been enjoying like reading and like starting to like work with our contributors on their works. So yeah, how how have you been enjoying like reading the submissions and like talking to the authors? Oh, I loved it. Um I think it's so like we got a really wide range of submissions and just to see you know the the quality and the skill that has come out of like the UNSW student body is great it made it really hard with voting but 
<laughs> I just want to say like props to everyone who submitted. I think it's really, um, it can be really hard and daunting to submit your own work for any kind of like competition or for publication. So yeah, congrats to everyone that did submit. But yeah, it's been fun to to talk yeah. to to talk to the contributors and the authors, see them face to face, so that they're not just writing on a page anymore; they're an actual person. That's that's always nice. Yeah. Um, how have you experienced it so far? Oh, I I loved like seeing how everyone interpreted the theme. There were so many submissions that just took the theme and then went with it. So. We had a lot of mythological references to a lot of like figures and creatures. I think in a lot of cultures and stuff. So that was really cool to see, and a lot of like family themed mythos. I think some were like based in like food was a big thing,、mm, yeah, <laughs> which I vibe with.、Um, so <laughs> yeah, so that was really interesting, and I definitely enjoyed doing that. So. Yeah, I really am working, looking forward to working with our contributors and editors. Yeah,、mm, yeah, yeah. I agree. I think I really liked the way that people interpreted the theme.、Mm. Um, you know, the mythos of culture, of family and food, and、uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the way that people have interpreted it. And the again, just the level of skill of、um, the submissions. Yeah, amazing. Just amazing work. Yeah. But yeah, even though submissions have closed, just want to remind everyone that you know on the Unsweetened Facebook page we still have writing tips and writing prompts each week. Just because submissions have closed doesn't mean you stop writing. Always keep writing,、um, and that's what the prompts and tips are for to keep that creativity flowing. Because there's always Unsweetened next year, and there's always some kind of writing competition happening and publications open. So. Yeah, I think definitely keep an eye out for prompts and tips still coming out, and definitely keep those pens working and those keyboards tip tapping, and keep writing. Yeah, those are some great tips and prompts you and me have been putting out. So、yeah. I've definitely been enjoying reading them, even though I haven't been able to actually find the time to write anything yet. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those have been really great. Thank you, thank you. It's not always.、Um, It's not always easy writing the the prompts. There is some some research involved <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, to try and get the my own creativity flowing, so that I can get everybody else's creativity flowing. <laughs> yeah,、um, but it gets there in the end, and that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So there was、um, one of our events recently, a journaling workshop that we. Were in attendance with Arc Wellness.、Um, you were there as well. How did you, how did you like the workshop on journaling? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I'm still, I'm still a newbie when it comes to journaling, but I've really found that it's really helped me with like clarity and like general wellness、um, in my everyday life. So, yeah, just seeing how everyone's been going about journaling was really eye opening for me. Mm. Um, like so many people showed up and in that workshop too. So, yeah, it was just a great session. Yeah, yeah, I agree.、Um, I hosted the first one in term one, and then this this workshop this term was more collaborative with Arc Wellness, which was really great. And we had a professional psych 
uh, Stella to come in and discuss, you know, her side and her knowledge on mental health and how journaling can help with that and can help alleviate stress and clear the mind and organize the mind which can be a bit hectic at times and I think it's a really important thing to if you if you've you've never journaled or if you're an avid journaler either way um, during these kind of stressful times that we're going through in New South Wales journaling is a really great way to kind of ease some of the anxiety and a strain that we put on ourselves under stress and yeah. yeah I think it's a really good thing so if you haven't journaled before I would definitely look into it because it's like it's definitely helped me in my life I've got quite a scattered brain at times I seem very organized on the outside but it's pure chaos on the inside <laughs> so <laughs> journaling does help a lot and I think it could help everyone else too I'm a big advocate for journaling mm. I can see why now because I've been so late to the to the game, but it's like it's been great. Like I, I'm a scatterbrain myself, so I use journaling to organize a lot of things and like just kind of get an objective look at my brain, <laughs> which has been helpful. Yeah, yeah, it's helpful, and sometimes it's a little bit scary because you're like, what's going? Like you write all the stuff that's <laughs> in your head, you're like, what the hell's that? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's why it's part of like a. It should be part of like a uh, agenda to help your your mental health. And you know, there's always so many great like methods of self care. I think um, particularly for people in lockdown at the moment, you know. Make sure you're getting sun. Make sure you're hydrated. This is my mum checkpoint. Make sure you're getting sun. Make sure you're, you're hydrated. You're eating your fruit and veg. Try and read a book. Don't stare at your computer too long. So don't do what I do. Do what I say. And then, <laughs> and maybe journal some of your feelings because it does really help. Um, yeah, and I'm hoping that we can do some kind of workshop next term with uh, wellness, but I guess we'll see what happens. I guess we're all in a bit uncertain times at the moment, so hopefully mm. that can be something to look forward to in the future. But, yeah. yeah. I love that. I needed those tips. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I think they're the basics that sometimes we we forget, you know, food, water, sunlight. Yeah. You're basically Definitely. just a very... Um, highly developed house plant you need you need the main the necessities yeah <laughs> like recently my mom's been yelling at my brother and me to go out to a balcony because that's that's how we get our sunlight <laughs> <laughs> just just walk out there just stand out there together for about 10 minutes and then walk back in that's all you need <laughs> oh yeah such a time i know i know but yeah, as long as you're getting the necessities, then that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Right. So next up, we have an interview with Sean Pryor, who is a UNSW faculty member who teaches in the English department. So our interviewers are Bill and Elena, who will be taking it away. Hi everyone, my name is Eleanor. I'm an editor for Unsweetened and I'm here with fellow editor uh, Belle 
and we're here to do an interview with Professor Sean Pryor. Sean, it's good to have you here. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem, no problem. Uh, did you want to just start off with an um, uh, introduction of yourself, let everyone know who you are? Sure. Um, I'm Sean. I teach English at UNSW. Uh, I teach mainly our poetry course. I've also found myself in recent years teaching our Shakespeare course, despite the fact that I'm very much not a Shakespearean. For the most part, I, uh, I, I work on poetry and I tend to work on uh, 19th and 20th century poetry, um, especially modernist poetry. Very occasionally, I will dabble and write about a novel, but for the most part, just just poems. So that's me. I don't know. I would say I took your Shakespeare class <laughs> last term. I think you're a bit of a Shakespearean. Oh, thanks. That's very good. <laughs> Okay, um, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I guess we'll get started. Uh, has there been something you read recently that enriched the way that you look at the world? Yeah, it's a good question. I was thinking about this this morning. I've been I've been working recently on uh, an, an essay on modernism's encounter with the hymn, which sounds like a deathly dull topic. Mm -hmm. Or. Uh, <laughs> But it actually turns out to be quite interesting, and I've found lots of weird, often very bad, but fascinating, um, obscure hymns published towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. The First World War, for instance, produced a, a flood of new hymns, many of them very patriotic, uh, mm. extolling the sacrifice of soldiers and so on and so forth. They're not great poetry for the most part, but they're really... <laughs> And it's interesting to see the function that poetry had in uh, society at that time, if that makes sense. And across the empire, there was one poem that I found. It was first published in the Times, for instance, uh, and it sort of exhorts the men of empire, literally refers to the men of empire, to go and, and, and fight for the empire. But then it was published in New Zealand. It was published in the uh, United States. So it was published across the globe. It kind of had a global circulation. So it's interesting to see poetry's kind of social functions in that way. Though, as I say, these are, these are not great poems. Um, what else have I been reading? I've been reading, there's a, a new book of poems by Evelyn Ara-Lewin. I'm not sure if you have heard of Evelyn Ara-Lewin. She's a, a really wonderful um, contemporary Indigenous Australian poet. She has a new book out called Drop Bear, which I highly recommend. It's excellent. Oh, um, I, okay, that I actually know um, her brother. Oh, right. Yeah, oh, that's so crazy. Yeah, I just realised who you were talking about. No, yeah, I know um, her brother. It's my partner's uh, brother-in-law, so <laughs> quite um, far Six apart. Six separation. It's a small world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you should, you should, you should uh, order a copy of Drop Bear. It's it's really amazing. Awesome. So, yeah, as you mentioned, your your work does focus primarily on 19th to 20th century poetics and particularly modernism. And uh, for you know anybody who has studied literature or history in general, they would know that this is one of the most richest and diverse periods in literary culture. So what, you know, specifically drew you to this era or style? And, you know, does it still capture your imagination in the same way or has your perspective changed since then? It's a good question. It's generous of you to describe modernism as a rich period. <laughs> um, sometimes I worry that 
or, you know, sometimes I feel that perhaps modernism's star is fading. I first came to modernism uh, as a high school student, really. Uh, I studied Yeats, William Butler Yeats, uh, for the HSC. Before that, I had really been um, most in love with Shakespeare and, and, and actually medieval poetry. I used to read a lot of medieval poetry. I, uh, I fell in love with Yeats. I convinced my three-unit um, HSC English class that we should choose Yeats as our special author. And I think by the end of the year, everyone else in the class quite resented me because they did not like him as much as I did. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, I studied Yeats for the HSC. Um, and then when I got to university and I was uh, doing my degree and majoring in English, I read a, a whole range of, of, of other modernist poets. I remember in, a, in an honours course that I was taking, it was a course on transatlantic literature, so literature that um, by Americans who were living and working in, in uh, Britain or on the continent, uh, but also uh, work by British or European writers about America. Um, there was the option to do your tutorial presentation on Ezra Pound. And I had heard of this, um, this figure, Ezra Pound. I'd never read any Ezra Pound. And all I knew about Ezra Pound was that it was really hard, that it was really difficult. That was, that was the impression I had from um, what I had heard about Pound. And I thought, well, if I don't, if I don't tackle what is difficult in an honours seminar, I'll never do it, so I will try. And, um, and that got me onto Pound. I ended up writing my PhD thesis on Yeats and Pound. Um, so there were a couple of reasons, I suppose, why I, uh, I became attracted to modernism. With Yeats, um, uh, I just kind of, I, I, I fell in love with the, well, retrospectively, what I would say, as a retrospective explanation, I have a better, better way of describing now what I was feeling then. But I think it was just the form of it. His forms are just so so rich and so impeccably well-crafted. At the time, I think I probably just felt that it was very powerful and interesting. Today, I would say that the reason I found it powerful is that, you know, even something as seemingly technical as his rhythm is just so very accomplished. And there was the difficulty of it. I actually really liked the challenge of it. Uh, and And... The anecdote about Pound is an example of that. I quite like puzzles, and I like, for better or for worse, treating poetry as a puzzle. I, I can well understand that for some that will feel very unsympathetic or unattractive, that poetry sh should not be a puzzle. It should be moving or emotionally uh, uh, stimulating. For me, it can be those things and be a puzzle. The two don't get in the way. But I understand that it doesn't work that way for everybody. Uh, whether or not my ideas about modernism have changed, I mean, as you become a researcher, your your motivation for reading things changes. So, the, I mean, the essay that I was describing earlier is a good example. Uh, I was reading these hymns not so as to be moved or even so as to find great poetry, but I was reading them because they're of historical interest. And they, I suppose you could say they provide a context for my reading of poems, which I do think are, are successful. But I actually quite enjoy uh, the archival work, seeing all, all, all the other sorts of poetry 
that that circulated a particular time and that that often were very popular and powerful to people at at a time in the past um so my motivations for reading have changed but that's not to say there aren't still poems that i am just floored by yeah i, th I think that's um a really interesting point in terms of looking at the way that poetry impacts uh certain people in a certain time and i think modernism is a really interesting period as you were saying for investigating how uh people respond to poetry and i think how people respond to poetry has 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 changed uh dramatically but at the same time some things you know stay the same <laughs> yeah it's a it's a really good problem it's actually a problem that is of some moment in contemporary criticism on modernism because this is a caricature obviously but modernist poetry much modernist poetry that is now canonical or now often read was not very popular at the time and there was a lot of other poetry which was very popular and so the 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 institutionalization of modernism the fact that we we or at least have that the institutional teaching and criticism of literature say from the end of the 19th century through to the second world war or whenever you want to to bracket modernism has focused on uh, those whom we label modernists is something of a misrepresentation of the the general literary production of the time uh, and so there are you know quite a number of, of, of really um, strong arguments that have been made recently that if we want a proper understanding of how literature worked say at the beginning of the 20th century You've got to look at all that other stuff as well. It, it, it might be that it does not meet our aesthetic, aesthetic criteria, uh, but it was powerful to people at the time. And that has a kind of historical value. It's worth, worth investigating. And you might even take it a step further and, and mm, working through that phenomenon, question one's own aesthetic criteria. It may well be that that other stuff actually is valuable and successful in all sorts of ways that we have trained ourselves to miss, like we've trained ourselves out of being able to appreciate those other kinds of poetry or fiction or whatever it might be. All of those, I think, are, are good and interesting problems. And some of the poets that I love most from the early 20th century are not you know, the most experimental or the most avant-garde. Modernism comes with this kind of, it comes with the value of the extreme in some fashion. Like the more fragmented it is, the better, or the more obscure references to dead languages, the better, or <laughs> the more the sentence is broken down, the better, the less intelligible it is, the better, the more avant-garde, mm. more experimental, and so on and so forth. Mm. That's not the only way to be better. It's not the only way to be good. Uh, it is important to remember. So, Sean, uh, many of the myths, legends, and folktales we have been discussing on this podcast were conceived thousands of years ago. Do you think it's important to revisit and reflect on older stories or should we focus more on the future? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the simple answer is that the, uh, yeah, there are two levels to my answer, I guess I would say. The simple answer is yes, it is essential, I think, to read not just myths and legends and folk tales from the past, but to read works from the past, to read the, the mm -hmm. literature of the past to engage with the cultural production of the past beyond literature. And it can seem as though to do that is to escape from the past, escape from the present into the past or to ignore the future at the expense of the past. 
which which might be the implication of the, the opposition in the question, right? Should we turn to the past or should we look towards the future? Really, mm -hmm. what I would want to say is that the two are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, one requires the other. If you want to look towards the future or understand the present properly, you need to look at the past. So uh, Belle was saying before that she's taking uh, a course about the Gothic. And if you want to understand how twilight functions or <laughs> if you're of my generation, if you want to understand how Buffy works, really, <laughs> really at some point you need to read Horace Walpole right? and Anne Radcliffe. Uh, you need That's to fantastic, yeah. <laughs> where, the, where the Gothic comes from. It's actually something that I feel quite quite strongly about. What I try to do in my poetry course very often is to pair some fairly recent work with some much older work so as to, to, to encourage students to read back and forth between the past and the present. Uh, in the Shakespeare course, it's a bit more difficult, obviously, because Shakespeare is just 400 years old. But, but on the other hand, there are plenty of ways in which to um, engage with Shakespeare's contemporary reception or his performance history, uh, to think about how Shakespeare is, is used in the contemporary world, his relevance, the, the, the uses and abuses of Shakespeare uh, today for this or that purpose. So um, working back and forth between the two um, is quite, quite productive. Uh, yeah, I was actually looking back at some of the essays that I wrote for your poetics course, and <laughs> I remembered that I wrote an essay, a comparative essay on Kendrick Lamar and Sappho. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> um, and looking back on that, I was like, wow, yeah, that's um, that's probably one of the most ambitious but satisfying things I've ever done. <laughs> that's great. See, I, I think that's really, really wonderful and, and valuable. I, I have it. I mean, uh, I, I have a, a concern, I suppose, that institutional systems and, and the, the rhetoric of contemporary institutions tend overwhelmingly today to be presentist to, to mm. emphasize the present and the future and often at the expense of the past um, uh, and and I'm too committed to Sappho for that. <laughs> that yeah I mean yeah I mean much recent commentary on poetry has centered around its recent resurgence in the popular imagination and consumption which is uh, mainly attributed to social media yeah. Um, but what what do you think the most exciting thing happening in poetry is at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it is true that there is an awful lot of uh, energy in contemporary poetry. Uh, and a lot of that energy centres on um, forms of poetry produced and disseminated via social media. So Instagram poetry, but also as my students um, inform me, um, on Pinterest and uh, no doubt there's TikTok poetry, though I've not encountered it yet. I'm sure it's there. <laughs> I would not love to see that. <laughs> mention, uh, performance poetry and slam poetry. And, and obviously in the last couple of years, performance poetry uh, has migrated uh, online uh, in, in really interesting and productive ways. So there's a lot of energy around those those developments uh, and and I can see why they are very exciting. One of the things that makes them exciting, I think, is that they are popular. Uh, some Instagram poets have, you know, 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers, which is extraordinary. Um, and it is interesting to think about why uh, they have been able to generate such followings. Uh, it's similarly interesting to think about what the audiences of performance poetry value, what it is that that the people who uh, produce performance poetry, the poets themselves and the audiences of uh, performance poetry get out of it that appeals to them in ways that other sorts of poetry might not. And that kind of returns us to the, the problem that I was talking about with modernism, that many of the canonical modernist poets were not in their day hugely popular because there is also plenty of much less popular contemporary poetry, uh, some of which is very experimental or avant-garde, some of which we will read in a poetry course at UNSW, and some students will say, that is not poetry, that is that's too much, or that is too far, or that's rubbish, or whatever it might be. So I, the, 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 the ultimate answer to the question for me is that I think what's most exciting is that there are all these different kinds, mm. and trying to think about the the landscape, if you like, or to switch figures, the ecology of contemporary poetry is really interesting. How is it that both a an Instagram poet with four million followers, or you know Amanda Gorman performing her poem at Biden's inauguration, mm. is part of at some level, it may be a quite abstract level, but nevertheless at some level, the same art form as you know, a highly avant-garde contemporary poet who's publishing in chapbooks uh, of which perhaps there are 50 or 100 copies printed, you know, and it's for a small audience, uh, often of fellow avant-garde poets and academics. What is common to these things? What is different about them? What sort of functions do they serve? Uh, what sort of aesthetic criteria do they meet? All of those are good questions. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think the most exciting thing is not one or, or another development, particular development, but the fact that the, the landscape is so diverse. That's a really good point. I think it's probably the defining characteristic that I observe in poetry at the moment is its diversity because we have so uh, such a rich uh, history and tradition to pull from. So I think that's what um, makes it really interesting uh, to work on. Like I kind of grew up uh, reading and writing poetry on various blogs and tumblers and all that kinds of stuff. And it's kind of transformed itself into Instagram poetry in a way. And uh, but at the same time, you know, you have really interesting, yeah, chapbooks, chapbooks and zines published all the time. So it's, on the one hand, I think it can feel a little overwhelming, uh, the amount of content that there seems to be. Yeah. So I feel like contemporary poets these days almost have it harder um, in a way because they're not only fighting against the tide, but they're aware of the amount of content out there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, it's, um, it's basically impossible to keep on top of anything close to everything. You know, to, to, to sort of even to be familiar with all of the scenes or movements or groups or however you want to bracket contemporary poetry production. And on the one hand, that might produce a kind of anxiety. But on the other hand, it can be liberating because it it uh, it means that you do no longer need to have um, a sort of 
omniscient overview of things. And there's actually a really good lesson in that for thinking about the poetry of the past as well. Uh, when you, you know, are reading an anthology of 17th century poetry or even 19th century poetry, the anthology looks as though it is giving you an omniscient overview of things, right? This is all the stuff that was produced or this is all the stuff that was produced that matters, that was good. And that's false. Uh, the Norton Anthology is not a representative selection of poetry produced from Old English to now by any stretch. I mean, recent editions are better than older editions, but, but anthologies and canons select and simplify, uh, and a lot of the most uh, sort of exciting contemporary criticism has been an effort to recover everything that is left out from those processes of selection and to show that the, the landscape or the ecology of the production of poetry in the past is, is actually also or was also really very diverse and rich, much as it is today. So, yeah, that returns us to our point about the past and the present continually informing each other. Thanks, Sean. That's so interesting. Um, so just for the last question for today, uh, what is your favourite myth, legend or folktale and why? Thanks, Alvin. When I, when I got this, I've been thinking about this question has been the one keeping me up at night. <laughs> uh, when I got this question, I could not think of an answer. And um, all I could do was think about why I could not think of an answer. I don't have a favourite myth or folktale or legend. And there are, I think, a couple of reasons for that. It's got something to do with the place of myth or folktale or legend in the sort of life that I have had, which is a middle class, white Australian, contemporary, secular life uh and so there are not for instance myths or legends that were uh, especially important to my family group you know my community uh myth and legend did not have a, an especially prominent role in that kind of life except i suppose you could say in the debased forms of you know a pretty secular christmas <laughs> that 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 kind of thing so when i think about Myths, I think I I confess, and it does feel like a bit of a confession. I think about them as a as a scholar thinks of them. I think of them as a critic thinks of them. I think of them as resources which literature makes use of. To put it that way is to imply a distinction between myth and literature, which could certainly be questioned, and I I recognise that. But when I think about the the myths or the legends that well, the first myths and legends, I suppose, that, that come to mind are those that have been most sort of fruitful, I guess you could say, across the literature that I know well, which is by no means everything. And so it would be examples like the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, or Ovid's Metamorphoses. So uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses is hugely influential on Shakespeare, for instance, and on, you know, countless poets, novelists, playwrights, at least writing in English across the centuries, not to mention many other arts, painting, music, and so on and so forth. So they're just hugely, hugely productive. But of course, Ovid's poem itself is not, it's not really myth. It's a, it's a, a work of art that draws on myths, brings them together, shapes them and arranges them in, in very artful ways. So it's a kind of step removed from, art, from myth itself. But as I say, that is a very scholarly sort of answer. That is to say, well, you know, the myth that I like best are the ones that have produced the, the most and the best poems rather than 
uh, happen to have the most powerful stories or happen to have the stories, for instance, which have most informed my kind of communal life because that is not the sort of life I have had, I suppose. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I actually think it's a really cruel question that we ask all of our interview guests um, because I also really struggle. I always think about it whenever I do one of these uh, interviews or listen to them is I'm like, what is my favorite myth? And I also don't have one because I think, uh, you know, as you said, like the tradition of kind of grasping on to other cultures mythology, I think, is something yeah. that has been interesting to look at and the recourse that um, white middle class uh, Australians have to something like Greek mythology or Roman mythology um, and the way that that's been reinterpreted through classicism and neoclassicism and romanticism. So uh, the way that myths get uh, reborn into new contexts. so I think it's, yeah, it's uh, an interesting way to look at how I think the most interesting part is the s- symbolism of mythology that gets regurgitated in literature and works of art um, and to trace those and say, oh, you know, that author, that artist was referring to that. Why were they referring to that? That's interesting that that was part of their milieu, I guess. Yeah, there's a, there's a potential distinction to be made between myth with its symbols as you put it, and what you might call that sort of the bare bones of the story, a plot and some characters, which remain stable across multiple incarnations and adaptations. You know, to to take a a classical example, something like the the story of Odysseus is a a story that we 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 receive or comes to us in the Odyssey, but is also referred to in other works of Greek literature, not to mention um, mosaics and paintings and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and then subsequently through the, the millennia is retold and adapted in all sorts of ways. And at some level, the myth remains the same. Right? The myth doesn't change. The myth is stable. Uh, as soon as I say that, there's a part of my brain that says thinks of exceptions and qualifications, but let's let's take that as a, as academic brain <laughs> yeah well, well um take it as a simplification that we'll accept for the moment that the myth remains reasonably stable whereas each particular instance say Joyce's Ulysses is trying to make a singular artwork out of that myth and uh, my training is is overwhelmingly to be interested in the singular artwork rather than the stable myth um, I have been trained to value that sort of thing. So I'm interested in the differences between the way Pound uses the Odyssey and the way Joyce uses the Odyssey and so on and so forth, um, or the story of uh, uh, Odysseus. Uh, I'm not sure if that helps. But it's it's another explanation for why the myth itself, I suppose, is not the most important thing to me. Uh, it's the particularity of each adaptation or reinvention that, that I I tend to value, I suppose. But that's because I've been trained that way. Well, I think it's an interesting way to look at um, mythology. I'm Greek and Italian, so I can't really escape it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like embedded in the culture. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today about poetry and modernism and myths. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
Thanks, Phil and Elena, for that lovely interview. So up next uh, for our next segment, we have our fellow editor Mia with her myth retelling. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening uh, in on this episode. And thanks, Wen, for hosting with me. Yeah, a pleasure. Take it away, Mia. The High Priestess Medusa, daughter of sea gods Forsifus and Cedo, drapes silk over windows, pours olive oil into polymer clay vases, and braids rosemary into a laurel, or in honour of the great Athena. The role of High Priestess is not one to be taken lightly, and Medusa, in all her great loyalty and faith, has committed to chastity for the goddess. In Athena's temple, Medusa works away, devoting her life to good faith. Medusa is beautiful, a superlative beauty of course, with silk soft hair said to rival even Athena's. Every god and man to catch a glimpse of her agrees, especially the impetuous Poseidon. After a number of woefully rejected catcalls, Poseidon, a god arrogant and entitled, rapes Medusa in the sacred temple, disgracing Athena and devastating Medusa. Athena, enraged and incensed, vows revenge on this heinous act but it is Medusa on whom it is enacted. Athena curses Medusa to a miserable fate. For hair, she receives a thousand vicious snakes. For eyes, a piercing glare that literally petrifies anyone it meets. And a tongue sharp as paper, flitting between barbed fangs. Her once exceptional beauty is now grotesque, and her face unbearable to the world. In unthinkable shame and desolation, Medusa hides out in the caves of the Gorgons, away from the selfish gods. But like Poseidon and Athena, more heroes, so they seem, wish to have their way with Medusa, and all vainly attempt to return with her head, erecting some malevolent belief that is Medusa, who is the monster. That is, until Perseus, under the command of the king of Seraphis and the aid of Athena, sets out to kill Medusa. Ordinarily, Perseus would be no match for Medusa. With a single solemn stare, she has managed to defend herself from every intruder. But with Athena's gleaming bronze shield and an intoxicating belief in himself, Perseus is able to slay Medusa in her own home and retrieves her head as his prize. Fast forward a few thousand years and Freud will tell you that Medusa is just a metaphor for the fear of castration, as if a woman raped, abandoned, cursed and mutilated can't even have the autonomy to symbolise her own plight. Medusa is not the monster her appearances make her seem, Her stone stare that strikes fear into the hearts of men and gods alike only does so because it takes their overleaping ambition and objectifying gaze and turns it back onto them, ossifying them in an ill-conceived moment of greatness. Medusa, a victim of pride, lust and unjust rage, was killed only by divine assistance and she lives on to help the venal Perseus in battles beyond, living up to the meaning of her name, Guardian 